Glad to see all of you again this year. This is my favorite time of the year. One of you are wondering why we started late. I want you to know, just for the record, we did not start late. We scheduled 20 minutes of fellowship at the beginning of the hour. <laughs> How many of you were here last year? Well, I want you to know that the subjects that are assigned to me this year are a veritable sugar stick. <laughs> John chapter 10. This is a little bit loud, I think, George. John chapter 10. You follow along as I read, beginning with verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, to destroy. I have come that they may have life, that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he who is a hireling and not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. We're going to be focusing in mainly on verse 11 and unpacking some of the implications of that where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, as most of you, I'm sure, are aware, we should understand this passage in John chapter 10 against the background in John chapter 11. You remember in chapter 11 there, Jesus has healed the blind man, this man who was born blind. We go through the account of that in the first 12 or 13 verses, and then there's that ominous statement in verse 14, it was the Sabbath when Jesus did that. And of course, you know the rest of the story. The Pharisees uh, went to this man and said, who healed you? He said, well, it was Jesus. And you remember what they said. No, he didn't heal you. You weren't blind. 
thought I was. I mean, all my life I couldn't see, but, but now I can. No, you weren't blind. And so they went and got his parents, and you remember the story. Was, was this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. He's always been blind, and today he can see. Who did it? And then knowing the way the Jewish leaders felt about Jesus, you remember they said, um, he's a grown man, ask him. <laughs> He'll tell you. And so they turned to him again. Who did this? Well, Jesus did it. Well, what do you think of Jesus? Well, all I can say is that if he can do this kind of a thing for me, he must be a great man from God. He must be a prophet. Well, of course, they wouldn't hear of that, and so they tried to bring him away from that profession of his faith in Jesus. They try to tear him away from that. He can't back up. Finally, you remember, he's frustrated. Look, all I know is that I was blind, and now I can see Jesus is the one who did it. And for that statement, he was excommunicated from the religious life of Judaism. And Jesus makes the implications at the end of the chapter there, you remember, where these Pharisees are blind. And it seems that that's the contrast when we come to chapter 10, because we are looking in chapter 11 at these would-be shepherds of Israel. And in contrast to these would-be shepherds of Israel, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And you can't help but see the contrast involved. They run roughshod over their people, and it's obvious they don't care for their people. But Jesus says, there's something different about me. I'm the good shepherd. In fact, he fleshes out that contrast a little more when we get into chapter 10, verses 10, 11, 12, following. He gives this illustration of the hireling who keeps the sheep. You've got the hired help keeping the sheep. Hey, you, know, you all know the scene. The, the man is out there. He's watching the sheep. He's earning his money. And all of a sudden, this big wolf comes. And he looks at the situation and he thinks, now, I can stay here and fight this wolf. I might win. But then again, I might not. And he figures, you know, these sheep aren't mine. And if these sheep are lost, it really doesn't hurt me. And he leaves. The wolf comes and scatters the sheep. And you can't help again but see Jesus drawing the contrast. These would-be shepherds of Israel, they're like that. But Jesus says, I'm not like that. I am the good shepherd. And in fact, my goodness is seen in this, that when I see the danger approaching my sheep, I do not run away from the danger. I run and step in between them and the danger and take it myself. I lay down my life for the sheep. Not just that I'm willing to lay down my life. I lay down my life for the sheep. He says here, I'm the good shepherd. And the word there, translated good, is good in the sense of desirable, attractive. And he's saying that there's something about my shepherding that you will find desirable. Something that you'll find attractive. I'm a good shepherd. There's something attractive and desirable about me. And what you will find so good about me is just this. Unlike these other would-be shepherds, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now we can't read that passage without saying, seeing that this is really part and parcel of the focus of the whole Bible. That Jesus' goodness is described for us and defined for us in the Bible in precisely these terms. He's good to us in many other ways. There's many other aspects of his goodness. But this is the chief aspect of Jesus' goodness. That he lays down his life for the sheep. 
The great thing that Jesus did for us was not that he left us a great body of teaching, as great as it is. The great thing that he did for us was not that he provided a great model of living. He did that, and that's wonderful. But the great thing that our Lord did for us, and that which defines his goodness for us, is exactly this. He laid down his life in our place. And we can't read those words without thinking in terms of substitution. That he came and put himself between us and danger. And the danger illustrated here, obviously, is the danger of divine judgment. He sees his sheep who have sinned. They are in danger of divine judgment. But rather than leaving them to face the judgment by themselves, he comes in, steps between them, and bears the judgment himself and lays down his life for the sheep. He takes their penalty for their sin himself. You can't look at the verse and see it without the doctrine of substitution. I don't think really you can see it without seeing illustrations of the Old Testament sacrifices as well. I lay down my life for the sheep. Reminiscent, isn't it, of the Old Testament and the sacrifices which were offered and there the sin was confessed over the innocent victim, and the victim then bore the penalty of the sin, symbolizing what Jesus is getting at here. And what he's saying here is he's presenting himself in his great work as a priest, offering himself in sacrifice, substitutionally, in payment for our sin. And so Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. There's something attractive about me, something desirable, and it is this. I lay down my life for the sheep. Now there's more, and this is what I particularly want to focus on this afternoon, and that is that Jesus is not simply speaking only of his substitutionary work, but he comes at it from this slant that he is a willing Savior. And there are several indications in this passage that he, he focuses on this aspect of the voluntariness of his substitutionary sacrifice. Now, I want you to see how this is emphasized. First of all, in verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, some of the texts I know re read here, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In either case, we have the same point. It is something that he does voluntarily. The sacrifice of his life for his sheep was not something that was wrenched away from him. It was not something demanded and taken by force. It was something that he gave up willingly. I give my life. I lay down my life for the sheep. In fact, in verses 10 and 11, this is, he explains, the very purpose of his coming. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, I don't think I'm reading too much into the text when I... When you observe that when Jesus says, I have come, that there are implications in that that are different from the way we can normally speak. When a baby is born, we don't say, this baby came. We might say it arrived. But we don't say the baby came. There seem to be overtones in that, and this is all through the Gospel of John, particularly we find that, where Jesus' birth, and this is the implication, I'm sure, his birth was not like any other birth. It was not the beginning of his existence. 
It was an incarnation. He came, and we find this all through the Gospel of John, emphasized that Jesus came, and he came from heaven, he came from the Father, and he came with a purpose. He came to fulfill a purpose, to fulfill a mission. And again then, with that, we are emphasizing the graciousness and the condescension of Jesus coming. He came with a purpose, and that purpose, he says here in verse 11, was to die. And that is something he came to do. And again, we find it is something he does willingly, voluntarily, a completely selfless purpose in his coming. We find that Jesus came in verse 10 to give his sheep life. But it's not that simple. These sheep have sinned. There is a penalty demanded. But Jesus says, I came still. I came to give them life. Verse 11, how? I'll give my life for them. In other words, then we find that this death of Jesus is something he voluntarily took on himself. We find it emphasized again in verses 17 and 18. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. And actually it's very expressive there. I lay it down away from myself. And again you find this, this emphasis that this is something Jesus does voluntarily. Now when he says here, no one takes it from me. I lay it down from myself. On the one hand, Jesus is reasoning from the nature of the case. If Jesus dies, it necessarily has to be a voluntary death. Doesn't it? I mean, consider who he is. This is the way he was introduced to us in chapter 1 of the gospel, the prologue. In him was life. There is something different about his quality of life from ours. Our life is so dependent upon so many other things. Jesus' life is not that. The Son of Man, he says, has been given to have life in himself. And so, by the very nature of the case, if he dies, it must of necessity be a willing, voluntary death. Because there's no necessity for his dying. In fact, we can look at that at another angle. Death comes as a result of what? Sin. No sin in him, and yet he dies. And again, we point up the doctrine that he, he, alludes to, he, he points out in verse 11. And that is the substitutionary nature of his death. He dies as a sinner. Taking the sin of others and the death he, he, he endures, he endures as a result of sin. Not his, but the sin of others. But again, on the one hand, Jesus is reasoning from the nature of the case. If he would die, it of necessity must be a voluntary death because of who he is. But more than just a, a bare explanation of the nature of things, Jesus is stressing here the graciousness of his death. The whole point in contrast here, in the context, is in contrast to these hirelings who come and obviously have no concern for the sheep, their concern is not for their well-being. Their concern is not for truth, for what is right. Their concern is for themselves. And so they let the sheep be scattered or they'll like this one in the end of chapter 9. They'll let him wander off by himself and they don't care. But Jesus says, I'm not like that. I've come and I've come for the purpose of saving them by dying for them. And I do this willingly. This is something I offer for them voluntarily. In other words, he's telling us here his death was no mistake. His death was no surprise to him. 
Jesus was not some victim of circumstances. He was not taken unawares. This was not something that was thrust onto him apart and out of his control. This was the reason for his coming. This was the goal of his incarnation. This is, as he put it, his finest hour. And this is something Jesus often emphasized with his disciples. We find it described in the book of Luke. He set his face toward Jerusalem. We get that from the servant songs in Isaiah. He set his face like a flint. And you get this picture of a determined going to Jerusalem. And he said, I will be arrested by the authorities. This is something he did with a determination about him. Repeatedly, he told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I came, he said, to give my life a ransom for many. You remember when he was arrested in the garden, he didn't resist. He didn't ask his disciples to fight for him. And in fact, the one disciple who did fight for him was the one Jesus rebuked. And you remember Jesus is arrested and he goes and stands before his, his trials. And You remember what he said in his defense? Nothing. And you remember he stood before Pilate and Pilate starts bragging. And Pilate says, don't you understand that I have the power to take your life? And that's when Jesus spoke. Don't you understand? You would have no power to do this at all except it were given to you from my Father in heaven. But you see the point. That power was given to him from heaven. This is something that Christ has come to do. And even when he hung on the cross, he didn't cry for help. He didn't call for the angels. He hung there willingly, voluntarily, giving himself in sacrifice. And throughout, there is this emphasis of verse 17 and 18. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down from myself. The motive behind his sacrifice is not something that is found in us. It is found only in him. This is what the apostle taught us. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's the point of all of that? It is something we did not deserve. It is something that came entirely from his side. This is something he does willingly. His death was inexplicably voluntary. He's a willing savior. Now that is not simply a fine point of theology. It is that. It's a very important point of theology. It would be, as opponents to substitution have always argued, it would be a terrible miscarriage of justice to punish an innocent man in the place of a sinner. It would be unjust if the substitute were unwilling. For instance, if I got a ticket for speeding. You know, of course, that could never happen. <laughs> and I went to court, and I couldn't argue my way out of it. The facts were in, and I was guilty. And I said, Your Honor, I don't have the money to pay the fine. And let's say the judge says, oh, okay. And he says to the bailiff, go out and grab the next guy walking down the sidewalk, bring him in here. So he does, and the guy comes in, he says, you're paying this man's fine. That would not be just. But let's say John Riesinger were there. And John Riesinger came up and said, Your Honor, I'm a wealthy man. <laughs> and I'm a gracious man. 
and I want to pay Fred's fine for him. Would the court be satisfied? Yes, it would. In fact, by the way, we haven't carried the illustration far enough, have we? Because in our case, the judge steps down to pay the fine, right? So on the one hand, this is a very important point of theology in that respect, so far as the justice of substitution is concerned. But on the other hand, and I think more importantly for our purposes this, this afternoon, we have to realize in this teaching that we cannot look at Jesus' death as something that we deserved. Jesus is emphasizing here, at least by implication, that he did not come as one who was obliged to come. Jesus did not need to come. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The whole motive, as I say, behind his sacrifice is not found in us. It is found only in him. The underlying cause is found only in him. And this is precisely, he says, what makes me the good shepherd. Unlike these others, I am a good shepherd and my goodness is seen in this, that willingly, of my own free will, I lay down my life for the sheep. Seeing us in danger of divine judgment, he came running to our rescue and with no concern for himself, with no concern for the cost, he lays down his life in our place. I think we have to say that even that doesn't exhaust the grace involved. The graciousness of his sacrifice for us is not seen simply in that he came running to our rescue when we didn't deserve it. That's part of it. But we have to go further and we have to consider who came. And we have to consider for whom he came. It is one thing to say that Jesus did this for us when we didn't deserve it. But the whole truth is not told until we go on and say that what we did deserve was condemnation at his hand. And not until we get to this point and say that this one who bore the penalty of our sin is the one against whom we had sinned and the one who should have condemned us if we had had our rights, not till we say that it was this one who came and willingly offered his life in sacrifice for us. Have we gotten to the bottom of this? We can't explain it in terms of self-enrichment. I mean, God is no better off. I mean, he gets praise for it. And throughout eternity he will, but, but God himself is not enriched by it. Only here we get to the bottom of it, that the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus is unlike any other. Yes, the question of justice is involved, and it's necessary for the substitute to be a willing one. That is immensely important. But beyond that, it is a question of unconditional grace and love. This God against whom we had sinned and whose justice demanded our condemnation loved us such that he came and bore the brunt of his own wrath for us. 
When we hear our Lord saying here in verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down from myself. We should think more than in terms of lordship, that he doesn't need to die. We should think in more than in terms of justice, as important as that is, we should think in terms of grace. He's a willing Savior. But then there's another slant to all of this that Jesus gives in verse 18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. This command I have received of my Father. I will admit to anybody, anytime, that there is nothing more taxing on my brain than trying to understand the Trinity. Now, now we're introduced to that here a little bit. This command I have received of my Father. We have to understand it in reference to the relation of the persons of the Trinity. You all know that. There is one God. The Bible is very emphatic on that, very clear. But also we find that there are three persons who are God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And so there are three persons, and yet these three are one. There's the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. If you can explain that better, I would love to have you do it for me. These three persons are co-eternal, co-glorious. They share equally in all the attributes of deity. They are equally God. Yet within that Trinitarian relationship, we find that there is a subordination involved. There is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And there is the subordination because you never, you, you find that the, the Father sends the Son. But you never find that the Son sends the Father. You find that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but you never find the Spirit sending either the Son or the Father. There's always this structure, subordination. And yet, all three of them are equal in glory and equal in power. If you're not totally confused, I'll try harder. <laughs> well, that's the Trinitarian relationship that, that, we that we know. We don't necessarily understand totally. But there's more than a Trinitarian relationship here. There's a Trinitarian agreement that's being spoken of. This command I received from my Father. And we find this kind of language very often in the Gospel of John. For instance, in chapter 12, if you'd like to look at it, in verse 49, Jesus tells us that, he, that the Father who sent him gave a commandment, what he should say and what he should speak. What the Father has told me to say, I have said. And this speaks of Christ's coming in relation of a prophet. He has come as the great prophet, revealing the Father. We find the same thing in chapter 17, you remember, in his high priestly prayer. In verse 8, he says to the Father, The words which you gave me, I gave to them. We find it in other places. Usually the term is what we find in chapter 12 and other places, the, the word sent. The Father who sent me. He sent me to save. He sent me to do his will. We find that kind of language throughout the gospel of John. John chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. And we find that 
Christ came as the Son sent from the Father on a mission. He came on a mission that was defined by the Father and which the Son willingly took and carried out. And here in chapter 10, the command has specifically to do with Jesus' death. This command to lay down his life is something that he has received from his Father, and it's a command which he willingly takes. Now, whether we speak in terms of sending or commanding, it's obvious here we're, we're led into some kind of a deeper mystery. It's as though Jesus has pulled back some curtains for us. There's something here we could never have known if he had not told us. He's letting us in on something that has gone on in the relationship between the Father and the Son. The language, as I say, reflects some kind of a Trinitarian agreement. In fact, we find that very often in the Gospel of John and and throughout the Bible as well. In John chapter 17, when he prays, he says, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And obviously, Jesus is speaking there in anticipation of the cross. But he says of the cross that it's a work that the Father gave him to do. We find it in the book of Psalms, quoted in the book of Hebrews, that this body was prepared for the Son so that he would do the Father's will in offering a sacrifice for sin. One of the famous ones is Luke chapter 22 when Jesus speaks of, in reference to Judas and his betrayal. And he says, woe to him, the Son of Man goes as it was determined. He goes to what? Well, he goes to his death. Well, who determined that? Well, you have to say God the Father determined that. What was determined? His death. When was it determined? Well, it was something that preceded his coming because that's what defined his mission. And in fact, Peter fills in that detail for us, doesn't he? He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so in all of that, this language of a Trinitarian agreement, we find some description of The Father initiating this entire scheme of redemption. It's God considering humanity and its fallenness and its sin without any way of helping itself. And God looks and he elects some whom he would save. These are those whom he calls his sheep. And yet recognizing that their salvation would require the death of an innocent substitute, the Father did not shrink away from the cost but willingly chose to send his son to die in their place. For his part, the son willingly accepted the command. Father, if you will that these people come to be with you in glory, then I'll go and I'll become one of them and I'll assume every obligation you ever gave them. I'll assume and take on myself every responsibility they have had and I'll take it perfectly. And I'll go and I'll offer my life in sacrifice for their sin. I will lay down my life for the sheep. This explains why we find Jesus speaking in terms of coming to accomplish the salvation of those whom the Father has given him. In fact, isn't it interesting here in chapter 10? The sheep, they're not sheep because they're saved, are they? They're saved because they're sheep. I lay down my life for these sheep. There are other sheep out there that are not of this fold. I'm getting them too. In fact, later in this chapter that we didn't read, he he says to the Jews very pointedly, you don't believe me because you are not of my sheep, but my sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. 
And in all of that, it is impossible for me to see how modern theology can come up with its doctrine of the atonement, Jesus dying for everyone in general, sort of that somehow, hopefully, maybe somebody somewhere might see his way to making his way through to Christ. As though Jesus died in hopes that someone somewhere might be saved. Jesus did not die in hopes of anything. He died with the certainty that his sheep would be saved. It was something that must be because you see justice now demands it. This is the whole point of his coming. I come and I'm laying down my life for the sheep so that now they must go free. Justice demands it. They must be saved. I'll pay the penalty in their place. But still there's more here. We have this Trinitarian agreement. But I want you to notice the comment that Jesus makes about all of this as concerning his relationship to the Father. Notice verse 17. Therefore, my Father loves me. Now what do you do with that? Therefore, my Father loves me. Now, I think that this is even more difficult than what we've looked at so far. Now, in one sense, it is not. I mean, it doesn't mean, it obviously does not mean that God the Father's love for God the Son was conditioned on the, on the Son's dying. He's not saying that the Father did not love the Son until the Son died. I mean, that's clear. We, we know better than that. What then does he mean? Because I give my life for the sheep, the Father loves me. Well, I think maybe an illustration might help. Most of you are married. Uh, I trust you've got a relationship that might be able to relate to this. You know what it's like when you do something particularly nice for your wife? You've gone out of your way and you've done something for her. This happened once or twice. <laughs> And because it's such a wonderful thing, and maybe because it's such an unusual thing, I don't know, but your wife might say something like, I love you for that. And it's not that she just began to love you. It's just that the action taken calls for a new expression of love. Yeah. This happens at home quite often. My kids, you'll see them running around here. My boy, he's nine, nine and a half now. He's getting to be quite a good-sized kid. Something you can tell, of course, he gets from his mother. <laughs> and all the time it still happens, even though they're getting so big. Daddy, give me a piggyback ride. And so you know what you do. You get him up, you know, and you run him around the house, and you, you dump him on the bed, and he laughs, and he has fun. Daddy, give me a horsey back ride. Now that's hard to get on your hands and knees and take around that many pounds. But, you know, once in a while you're in a softy mood, and you, you do it. And you run him around the living room and then you buck him off and he laughs and do it again, you know. And so you do it again and pretty soon you're just dying from it and you finally have to quit and you go and sit on the couch and you collapse. And you know what happens very often after that? He'll come jumping into my lap and says, Daddy, I love you. Yeah. And this is Jesus' point here. 
God the Father, he said, looks at this which his son has done for these his sheep. He says, I love you for that. And here the lesson I think that we learn is perhaps more amazing than anything we've learned so far. It was not only the Son who was willing to go the distance in saving us. It was the Father who was willing to give the Son to do it. God the Father today popularly is often portrayed as some stern God that really doesn't want to save us. He's the stern one and God the Son is the loving one. And and because God the Son steps in, he sort of forces the Father's hand and, and now he has to save us. But what he's telling us here is this trail of grace traces back not just to the cross. It traces all the way back to the very throne of heaven. Many times I have heard past preachers say in dealing with this kind of a thing, something to the effect that they try to to flesh out this idea that God the Father sent his Son. And I've heard it spoken of in terms of Well, they'll they'll go like this. I'll tell you folks, I don't know if I love you that much. I don't know if I could give my son for you. I'll tell you right now, I know. There's no way I could. This is my highlight of the year. I love you guys. You know it. We have a great time together every year. We have a wonderful fellowship everywhere I go. I brag about the, the Bunyan Conference. I love the folks, the people that God gave me in the church. We have a wonderful relationship. But never in a million years could I say, Jimmy, I'll give you up for them. It'll never happen. Yet we are told here that it is just this that explains how God loves us. The relationship enjoyed between these two persons is that of father and son. And the love between them is greater and stronger than any love we will ever know. And yet he says, not just that the Son was willing to come and die for us, but the Father chose to send him. And in fact says, I love you for doing it. The willingness is not just on the part of the Son. It's on the part of the Father also. Now I say... We were instructed yesterday at church, Dr. Johnson was preaching about the great immensities and how that shapes our focus on life. Here's one of them. If we understand this, in the midst of some crisis that you hit in your home, maybe more likely in your church, we'll never turn a scowling face to heaven and say, do you love me? He's proven that already, hasn't he? And isn't that, in fact, just how the Apostle Paul taught us to think about this? If God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with us freely, freely, with him freely give us all things? These doctrines are given us for our use in so many ways, and I'm sure this is one of the intentions of the revelation of these teachings. And I think you'll agree with me that Jesus is a good shepherd. 
I find something desirable about him, something attractive. He lays down his life for the sheep. John. Well, I think that was a good beginning, don't you? Makes you want to shout. <clears throat> now we have a period of discussion if you would like to ask questions pertaining to the message, but come up here because we don't have a remote mic. It's much easier to get the questions that way and also to get you on video. So do we have any questions? Fred and I are friends this year. This is not a question for an enemy. <laughs> but um, I'm not going to get back at him. Fred, how would you respond to Gethsemane? I mean, here your subject is the, the willingness of Christ. Uh, the, mm -hmm. Jesus prays in Gethsemane, take this cup away from me. To me, there seems to be some unwillingness there to bear the cup and yet he's still the willing servant. I think, okay, good question. And uh, maybe the answer I should give is come Wednesday morning and I'll, I'll flesh that out. Because actually, uh, John chapter 12 deals with that and I'll be dealing with that some Wednesday. I think the short answer, though, is you just see a very real person. He wants to save his sheep. He wants it very much. But when he sees the cost of it, he naturally shrinks away. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came to this hour. So I, th I think you see the natural shrinking away from the awfulness of it, but the determination to go through with it because he wants to. Which only emphasizes the point of the grace of it. Any other questions? you explain if there is any relationship between what has come to be known as the covenant of grace and the Trinitarian agreement that you spoke of? Between the covenant of grace? As it's taught by some covenant theologians, is this Trinitarian agreement uh, the same or different or could you explain? Um, could I? That's easy, yes or no. Would, <laughs> would, would you, another question, would you please? <laughs> Um, as I understand it, the covenant of, re of redemption uh, is essentially the way I've, the way it is taught by Reformed theologians is essentially the way I've fleshed it out this morning. I don't see any real difference between it. There are covenantal implications to the system of Reformed theology uh, that are carried with that that I wouldn't necessarily go along with, but the essence of what I talked about this morning, there would be no difference at all. In the early days of the Bunyan Conference, the conference was introduced to me by Dave as a place you can go and ask stupid questions. And sometimes we, we just look at the text and we say, that looks like a good stupid question, let's go for it. <laughs> in verse, uh, uh, in verse uh, 8, or rather, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Who are that? Who, who is the who who came? I know it's came past tense. I think the reference immediately is to the Pharisees. 
there has been some minor debate on that in the commentators. I can't remember what the other options were, to tell you the truth. My view is he's talking about the false teachers in Israel that have come, the Jewish leaders. And I think in context, that's pretty clear with chapter 9 behind this. More questions? easy there's a there's a commentator and when you get old you forget names it seems to me there's a Thomas but who took the view on the uh, Garden of Gethsemane that Christ was praying to be kept from physical death anybody know who that writer was no, no, no. No, I just read it. It's, it's interesting. He didn't convince me, but it was very interesting. And he tied it in with the book of Hebrews where it says uh, he uh, feared and prayed and was delivered because he feared God. And he takes that to be that, that Christ was afraid he would die physically under the pressure and not be able to go to the cross. And uh, it's uh, interesting, but not convincing. Yes. I've read it in John R. Rice's. I don't get a problem. John R. Rice. He got it from somebody else. 